Oh, thankful uh, for singing. It is uh, really good to hear those words sung by a lot of people. I'm just grateful uh, for the gathering of the church. I'm grateful uh, for a family who's patient with me. I sing a lot at the house. I'm not very good at it. Uh, and there's everything that is said, almost literally, right, guys? Almost everything that's said, I can think of a song that goes with it. And then it, I can't help but sing it. Uh, and so there's a lot of singing. There's people in my house, obviously, uh, that can sing really well. Uh, but I'm the one that sings more, probably, and they have to put up with it. I'm thankful. Uh, but there are ways in which songs remind us of things, uh, that, 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 that something will remind us of a song, and then that song lyric comes out. This week, or this, this year, we're getting ready for Christmas as a church by looking back to the portion of the Bible that was essentially the worship book of God's people, much of it songs that they would sing when they gathered together. Songs that point ahead to the coming Messiah, the promised and long-awaited king who would rescue and deliver God's people. This is what they were longing for, so they would sing about it. Last week, we looked at a psalm that at first glance seemed to have nothing to do with Jesus, the coming Messiah. It was a royal wedding love song, and as I read it and studied it, I wondered, well, where does this get us to Jesus? And then the New Testament helps us out, because the author of the book of Hebrews, written after Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, writes about Psalm 45 and, and, and a and attributes a couple of the lines in that song to Jesus. So that helped us read that psalm better. Now today, we're looking at another psalm, and this time, it's not so, it's not so hidden, it doesn't seem. We can look at this and at first glance come to see, oh, this one is definitely about Jesus. In fact, Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Yeah? So we're looking at one that clearly points ahead to Jesus. And not only verse 1, but other verses in the psalm get quoted often in the New Testament. Jesus says that Psalm 110 is about him. And so do multiple other New Testament authors. So we're going to take their word for it, and we're going to look at Psalm 110. We're going to look at it first in each of the sections. We're going to look at section 1, and then stop and say, how does section 1 help us to see the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how does section 1 of this psalm affect us? And we're going to do the same thing with section 2, and the same thing with section 3. So inside your bulletin, there is an outline for you to follow along if that's helpful for you. And if you're able to, would you stand? We're going to read the very Word of God. So if you're able to, please stand. I'm going to pray first, uh, and then we'll read. Father, we just got done praying, but we pray again. Very specifically now, that you, by your Holy Spirit who inspired David to write these words, who inspired the New Testament authors to write words using these words thousand years later. And now, a couple thousand years after that, we want these words, because it's your word, to sink deep into our minds, into our hearts, that it might affect the way that we think, the way that we love, and the way that we live. Please do that now, for the sake of your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God's word from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the days of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. You can be seated. So, Psalm 110, verse 1, that first verse that I just read, that is the one that is quoted or alluded to 22 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. A key to understanding this psalm, though, comes right above that in your Bible where it says, a psalm of David. Okay, That's a key to understanding this. Again, those superscriptions, not original, uh, but very old, and we can see in the New Testament that authors of the New Testament, including Jesus himself, will refer back to this as a psalm of David. So we know that David wrote Psalm 110, and that's a key to understanding it rightly. David was the second king of Israel who reigned about a thousand years, listen to this, about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And as the king at that time, there was no greater authority in Israel than King David. A lot of people would have referred to David with the respectful title of Lord, but David would not have referred to anybody else with that title except for the Lord God Yahweh, uh, which if in your Bible there is capital L-O-R-D. Okay? So that's who he's overhearing speaking in verse 1. It is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, who is speaking, but he's speaking, notice this, to someone that David calls my Lord. Well, that's interesting because David was at the top. He was the king. Who then is the Lord that the Lord is speaking to who is over David? That's the question that we have as we start walking through this psalm. Verse 2, well, I should finish verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The right hand of the Lord would be a place of reigning and ruling, a place of authority and power. And so you, David is overhearing the Lord Yahweh saying to someone who David calls his Lord, sit at my right hand. It's an enthronement kind of psalm. The Lord is calling someone to be the king, to be the Lord, to sit at his right hand, and it's not David, right? Because it's David's Lord that he's referring to. We'll get to this here in a moment. I just want to note, though, verses 2 and 3. Again, this kingly language of the Lord sending forth from Zion your mighty scepter. It's as though the Lord and this Lord are reigning together, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And then verse 3, now depending on the translation that you have, might read differently than this. And even if you have the ESV, there's probably some alternate translations because this is one of those passages that's just really hard to translate uh, from Hebrew into English. It's hard to understand exactly what David was writing here, but the general sense of this this verse 3 is basically this. This coming king that has great power, 
will have the people of God aligning themselves with him. Notice that in verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. As they see this one to whom God has given great power and authority rise to power, many will offer themselves freely to him. Okay? So David writing about this coming king whom God has enthroned, sitting at the right hand of God. David refers to him as his Lord, and many are going to follow him as his power is displayed. Okay, that's what we see in Psalm 110, 1-3. Now, we have the question, how does this point us ahead to the gospel? How does this point us ahead to the gospel? Where do we see the gospel in Psalm 110? Again, this time we don't have to search super hard because... Verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I mentioned there's a lot of times this is quoted in the New Testament. We don't have time to walk through all of them, but I want to walk us through two of them. And first, we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 22. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Matthew chapter 22 What's happening is two different sets of Jewish religious leaders have been trying to stump Jesus. They're asking him questions, trying to trip him up. But in verse 41 of Matthew 22, verse 41, Jesus is going to go on the offensive, and he's going to ask them a question, and he's going to stump them. Okay, So so watch what happens here. Verse 41, guess what verse Jesus is going to use to stump them? Verse 41, Matthew 22, verse 41 begins this way. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Right? So the Christ or Messiah would be the Hebrew word for it. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He's just kind of testing their knowledge. Well, they know. This is a basic one. You don't have to be a Pharisee to know the answer to this, that they knew the Messiah would be in the line of David. So they answer... They said to him, the son of David. Okay, right answer. They were right. God had promised that the Messiah would come in the line of David, so they get this right. But then listen to what Jesus does. Verse 43, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then Jesus says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They had been trying to stump Jesus. Now Jesus stumps them. He, he points out, it's clear in your own scriptures, Psalm 110.1, the Lord was speaking to another Lord, and it was not David himself. It was one who is the Lord of David. Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the coming king. I am the Messiah, the one in the line of David who ranks above David. I am David's Lord. And they dared not ask him any more questions from that point on. Now, after Matthew 22, we would soon come to the account of Jesus' crucifixion. But soon after the account of Jesus' crucifixion, we come to the account of Jesus' resurrection. And not long after Jesus' resurrection, in fact, 40 days after his resurrection, 
we have Jesus in the book of Acts ascending into heaven. So go ahead and turn to the book of Acts now. Jesus has died. He has been raised from the dead. All of these things displaying that he is the coming king that was promised. The king who has now been raised from the dead. The king who has ascended into heaven and has taken his spot at the right hand of God. And on the day of Pentecost... In Acts chapter 2, we have Peter preaching a sermon. And Peter is trying to convince these Jews who have gathered from many different places that Jesus is the Messiah. If Peter's going to try to convince a group of Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah, what passage do you think he might use? Psalm 110, verse 1. Go ahead and look at Acts chapter 2, verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens right? We saw Jesus ascend. David didn't ascend into the heavens like that. Jesus went up in a cloud. We saw it. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What passage is he quoting? Psalm 110 verse 1. And here's what he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's hard hitting. He's telling them, the one you've been waiting for, your Messiah, the Christ, the one who is Lord over David, it was Jesus. And you know what you did to him? You killed him. But by his resurrection and his ascension, he is now seated at the right hand of God. He is who he says he is. He is the the king who has come. All right, so that's the message to them. What does this mean for us? Like, what do we do with this truth? That Jesus was crucified for our sins? That he really died? That he really was buried? That he was really raised from the dead? That he really ascended into heaven? That he's really seated at the right hand of God? That he really is both Lord and Christ? What do we do with that? Well, let's just keep going in Acts chapter 2. Because as Peter speaks these words to them, the Holy Spirit's at work in their hearts, and look at what we read in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. His answer to them when they're cut to the heart, what do we do about this? If we believe that Jesus really is the Lord and the Christ who was crucified, buried, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, if that's who He really is, what do we do? And His answer, repent. Repent just means to have your mind changed. Stop looking for another king. Stop believing like you're the king. Stop living like you're the king. And instead, repent and submit and bow to the one who is seated at the right hand of God, who truly is the king. Think about this. Jesus looked to the Pharisees like he was just some radical rabbi And they were thinking he might become irrelevant after he died. The very opposite was true. 
Jesus did not become irrelevant after he died because after he died, he was raised from the dead and it became more clear that Jesus is in fact the king. Jesus is in fact Lord. He is the Christ. And when they heard that news, all of a sudden, on that day, it says later in that passage that 3,000 repented of their sins and followed him. That sounds like a fulfillment of verse 3 in Psalm 110, doesn't it? That, that on the day when you reveal your power, many will turn to you. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. Quick story, even people who aren't Iowa State Cyclone fans might know the story and like the story of Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy drafted into the NFL out of Iowa State, and he was the very last pick in the draft, and they give the title to the person who was the last person picked in the draft, Mr. Irrelevant. They don't expect that guy to always even make the practice squad of a team. But as things go, all of the other quarterbacks for the San Francisco 49ers get injured, and Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, all of a sudden becomes kind of relevant. And he does well enough, displays that he actually can do this well, and as he displays his, his football powers and the team wins, all of a sudden the rest of his teammates come behind him and they're with him. Oh, this is one that we can follow. And then the media begins to get behind him and then fans begin to get behind him and there's a lot more 49ers fans all of a sudden because Mr. Irrelevant has shown himself to become suddenly relevant. In a much more profound way, Jesus, who the Pharisees thought would be irrelevant after he has died, now that he is raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, oh, he is relevant. His power has been shown, and now thousands, and on that day thousands, and since that day millions have turned to follow him. Psalm 110, 1-3 has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He is the coming king. This is exciting. I can see on some of your faces that it looks like it is. Some of you don't look that excited yet. Let's keep going. Psalm 110, verse 4. Oh, there goes my Bible. Did you see that catch? Psalm 110, verse 4. Here's section 2. Just one verse. Section 2 out of 3. Verse 4 of Psalm 110 said this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And here we're going to hear the Lord speak again. The Lord Yahweh you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So first, the Lord speaks and calls this one Lord a king. You're going to sit at my right hand. And now the Lord speaks again, and he calls him a priest. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, priests, God's people would understand priests, right? There was a whole system that God had given to them through Moses in the law, of, of a priest who would come from, priests who would come from the tribe of Levi, and they would oversee the sacrifices in the tabernacle and later in the temple. So they understood the priesthood, that unclean, unholy people needed to have somebody go between them and a holy, perfect God, right? So that was the understanding of the priesthood. Later, Israel would have kings like David, but the, the, the kings would never come from the line of Levi. So priests, they come from the line of Levi. Kings come from other tribes. Interestingly, though, as David's writing this psalm, he overhears the Lord say, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, to this one that he calls Lord. What's he talking about here? 
And I wonder, unless, unless God's people knew their scriptures really well, they might have scratched their heads too. Because they only knew priests to come from the line of Levi, except this one obscure reference. Think about this for a second. Melchizedek was only mentioned one other time in Scripture, way back in Genesis chapter 14, during the time of Abraham, 400 years before the law of God was given and before the priesthood was set up. There is this one mention of a man named Melchizedek, and what's unique about this man named Melchizedek is that he is both priest and king. Huh. So now, hundreds of years later, David is overhearing the Lord say, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek to this one who is Lord over even David. And David's probably trying to figure this out. We're trying to figure this out. What, is this, what, what are we talking about? And then, interestingly, like we do with the other passages, we want to try to understand this. What does the rest of Scripture say? David, about a thousand years before Christ. Guess how many more times in that thousand years we hear about Melchizedek in the Old Testament? Zero. Zero. We hear about him in Genesis 14. We hear about him hundreds of years later in Psalm 110, and then for a thousand years, nothing about Melchizedek. Maybe that's just interesting. It's one of those song lyrics like we talked about last week. You're like, I just sang that, but I don't really know what that means. And then we get to the New Testament. I want you to go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews. In the New Testament book of Hebrews... Again, now this written after the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we come to understand better what Psalm 110.4 has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of, all, one whole, ch- this is crazy. This guy gets two mentions in all of the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, he gets a whole chapter. Hebrews chapter 7 is all about Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We went through Hebrews a couple years ago together as a church. I'm not going to preach that sermon again, but I want us to go back to the first mention of it in Hebrews chapter 5. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 5, just a couple of verses. In Hebrews chapter 5, again, trying to make the point that Jesus is the Christ, he is the king. He is the Son of God. He is the great high priest. Here's what it says in Hebrews 5, verse 5. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Remember what that's a quote from? The first psalm we did two weeks ago, Psalm 2. Okay? He's quoting from there, and he's kind of prove his, prove his point by using one more Old Testament scripture. What's he going to use? Look at it. Verse 6. Hebrews 5, 6, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, to prove this point. Verses 9 and 10 there in Hebrews 5 say this, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, when the Lord was saying in Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who is he speaking to? He was speaking to Jesus. Jesus is not only eternal king, Jesus is also eternal priest. What does that matter for us? Well, it matters. 
That's why we see it in God's Word in Hebrews chapter 7. So go ahead and turn there. Application for us of point number two is this. Why is this good news for us? It is good news for us because I think that deep down, we know, as I think Kirsten knew earlier when she was introducing that song, that we are unfaithful, weak, weary, broken sinners who have no business being in the presence of God. We know that. And we often carry with us the weight of shame. You have stuff in your life that's kind of a mess and you've tried cleaning some of it up but you can't get it all and so you know there's some dirty corners, there's some stuff that you've stuffed in a closet and shut the door hoping nobody opens it. And the enemy, Satan, would have you believe that your shame is all there is. That you cannot be forgiven, that you are unclean, and that you have no right to come before the God of the universe. That's what the enemy would have you believe. But you need to know, we need to know that the enemy lies. And we need to hear the good news today that Jesus is the eternal priest. He is the means by which unholy, unclean people with a messy life like us can come before the holy God of the universe. It is through our eternal high priest, Jesus, the mediator, the one who goes between God and man, the one who not just oversaw sacrifices, but the one who gave himself up as a sacrifice. So let's look at three verses. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25 says this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That was their problem. They all died. But he holds, Jesus, his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able, listen, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Good news, church. There is a priest who has sacrificed himself for you and he continues to intercede for you. For all who come to him in faith, he is the mediator. He is the means by which dirty, sinful, unclean, ashamed people can come into the presence of a holy, just, and loving God. How can we draw near to God? We draw near to God through faith in Jesus, confessing our sin to him. He is able to save us completely to the uttermost. This is good news. You catching the good news of Psalm 110? Like this isn't a psalm you just quickly breeze by in a Bible reading plan. It's only seven verses. You can read the whole thing in under a minute. But isn't it good to pause and see how the New Testament authors use this and how this points us ahead to Jesus? There's one more section, verses 5 to 7. We've got Jesus as enthroned king. We've got Jesus as eternal priest. What is revealed to us in Psalm 110, verses 5 to 7? It says... In Psalm 110, verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There's strong words in verses 5 to 7. 
In verses 5 to 7, very strong words. Words like shatter. Words like wrath. Words like judgment. Pictures like filling them with corpses. There are indications of the far-reaching scope of the work of this king, of this priest, and of this judge. The far-reaching scope is shown in words like among the nations and over the wide earth. Verse 7 paints a picture of victory. So we see judgment in verses 5 and 6, and then we see victory in verse 7. That idea of he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head as though he has done the work that he came to do. When Jesus, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. When this, when this judge comes and does the work that the judge comes to do, he will in the end be victorious, refreshing himself with a drink of, by the, from the brook, by the way, therefore lifting up his head in victory. Does this point ahead to Jesus? Do we see in the New Testament a picture of Jesus as the coming judge who has victory? Do we see in the New Testament a picture of Jesus, the coming judge who has victory? Is verse 5 through 7 here about him as well? I think yes it is. You could turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, all of verses 11 through 21. I'm just going to read 11 through 16 now. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Remember this picture, a victorious judge. He's going to do what is right. He's going to punish what is evil and reward what is good. Listen, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. We just sang that. His name forever, Faithful and True. Jesus is coming soon. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We were talking in our Sunday school class earlier of the contrast between the first and second comings of Jesus. This looks very different than a baby born to a virgin and laid in a manger. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a picture, and if you would continue in verses 17 and following, let me just tell you, it gets more intense. You thought that was intense, it gets more intense and even disturbing in the verses that follow. It's disturbing unless you understand that his judgment is just. His judgment is just. That we have a king who is the judge who does not come to shrug his shoulders at evil and just let it continue. We have a king who is coming to be the judge who will defeat evil once and for all. And all who stand against Jesus are doomed. How does this apply to us? Well, 
let me start with a quick story from history. Some of you like history, some of you don't. That's fine. We learn a lot from it. In December of 1944, World War II was almost done. Following the invasion at Normandy, the Allied forces spent about six months trying to root the remaining German troops out of the various places they were in Egypt. Generally, it was going well, but it was going so well that the Allied forces began to get spread thin. And as the troops prepared to cross the border into Germany, Germany unleashed what would be its last offensive in the war. And it looked bad for the Allied forces. Germany looked to be winning as they pushed back against the Allied forces, creating a bulge which stretched into Belgium, giving the battle its name, the Battle of the Bulge. The 101st Airborne was sent to Bastogne, but it was not looking good for the U.S. troops. The weather was turning. It was December, in fact. And they had very little cold weather gear, little food, and little ammunition. And they were outnumbered by the Germans five to one about. It was looking bad for the Allied forces and especially for the 101st Airborne. It looked like they were going to lose. The casualties were massive. It looked like the bad guys, those bent on evil and destruction of human life, it looked like they might have the victory in this battle. And the casualties were indeed massive. Allied forces suffered an estimated 81,000 casualties in that one battle. But the Germans suffered 100,000. And in the end, the Allied forces held on to win that battle, ultimately leading a few months later to the surrender by Germany on VE Day in May of 1945. And I tell you that story because that's just one of many stories where we can look back in human history and think, uh-oh, the good guys are going to lose and the bad guys are going to win. It doesn't look good for the cause of righteousness and justice. Revelation, the book of Revelation, was written to a people who felt anything but victorious. If they were looking at the battlefronts raging all around them, the Christians were the small, heavily persecuted minority, many of them being executed. It looked to them, most likely, that the church might not survive the first century. But they needed to be reminded that they have a victorious judge who is coming again. They needed to be reminded that that judge, Jesus, had made a promise back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where he said this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The message that Jesus has to his church is this. It might look at times like the church is in trouble, like, like we are doomed, but when the general comes, riding on his white horse, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, those who are united with him will be victorious. Justice will prevail. And those who are united to Christ by faith will be with him forever. There is no refuge from him, but there is refuge in him. And the message is, be united to Christ by faith. There's really two options. You're either with him or you're against him. Those united to him by faith, 
Those who have acknowledged, I'm a sinner and I have no hope on my own. My trust is in Jesus. I am with him. You will be forever with him. Those who do not acknowledge this stand doomed, ready to suffer eternal punishment apart from him forever. Revelation 21 just makes that very clear. And so we'll end there today. Revelation 21, 5 through 8, says this. And he who was seated on the throne, that is our enthroned king, the eternal priest Jesus, who is coming again to be the victorious judge. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That's one option. And the other option is this. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's two options. You are with Jesus or you are against him. And if you are not yet with Jesus, if you have not united yourself with Jesus by faith, I implore you, do it today. Be united with Christ, who gives to the thirsty eternal life without cost. He is the great high priest. He is the eternal king. He is the coming judge. And the only way that that things end well for you is by being united to him by faith. So receive that free gift today. And we who have been saved and united to Jesus by faith, the message I think we need to hear in all of this is quite simple. I think it's the message that God intended for the church to hear in the book of Revelation. That is this message. Stick with Jesus even when it looks like you're losing. Even when it looks like our team is losing, we stick with Jesus because he is the enthroned king. He is our eternal high priest and he is the victorious judge who is coming again to make all things new. Our hope is in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. (laughs) It is the greatest gift that we could receive. Thank you for sending your son to live a perfect life. As we sang earlier, he is the true and better Adam. Every human being since Adam, like us, has been sinful. But you sent your son who lived a life perfect without sin in complete obedience. Then he died in our place for our sin. Father, what a gift. And he revealed his power over sin and over death by being raised from the dead. And we know that he is now seated at your right hand, reigning as king, and we long for the day when he comes again to judge, to reign, to establish the new heavens and the new earth. So God, as we long for that day, I pray that this Christmas season, we would grow in our longing for that day. Pray that anybody who is not united to Christ by faith, 
would recognize that they need nothing more than this and that they would turn and trust in Him today. We long for all things to be made new, for things to be made right, and we know that only comes through the person and work of Jesus. So we sing now, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we need, that's what we desire. So help us to grow in that longing even as we sing this closing song. In Jesus' name, amen.